0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. Continuing the series on Britain's armed forces, in this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, author of Insurgency and Counterinsurgency, talks to the critics, deputy editor Graham Stewart, about how British defence priorities adapted from the end of the Second World War to the first years of the Cold War. Professor Jeremy Black, as far as Britain was concerned, what was the military position in 1945 following uh, first VE Day and then VJ Day?
1: Well, it's an excellent question because, in many senses, in 1945, uh, you can present Britain's military position as looking in two very different ways both a positive way and a negative way. In a positive way, The very destruction of the armed forces of Germany and Japan, and indeed Italy as well, and the grave weakening of those of France during the war, meant that Britain actually was in a relatively speaking stronger position in 1945 than in 1939. Now, of course, the United States and the Soviet Union were in an even stronger position. But once you take them out of the equation by Every stretch of the imagination, the next military power is Britain, which had not been the case in 1939. On top of that, in 1945, as yet, um, Britain still has the very large armed forces it's built up to fight the war. And these armed forces are, you know, cutting edge. I mean, the British are building at last very good tanks. Um, they have the second largest fleet in the world, no longer as big as the Americans, but it has many very good uh, warships in 1945, including a very large carrier fleet, um, and they have a significant and substantial uh, long-range bomber force. So Britain is a very major military power in 45. but obviously one can also draw attentions to weaknesses, the country is uh, very strained by the economic cost of war, it is accumulated a formidable deficit, not as large a deficit as that that has been accumulated during the COVID pandemic, but it has accumulated a very significant deficit, and that's going to be a problem, Um, and on top of that, um, although at 1945 one mustn't exaggerate, and there was nothing inevitable About the loss of India to the empire. Um, The election of a Labour government in 1945 which the Labour government pledged to independence for India really destroyed one of the bases of British military power going back uh, for over a century and a half, which was that as a great power, the British had really been reliant on a primarily and a combination of the leading navy in the world and the excellent British Indian Army.
0: Well, there's a huge number of personnel um, still under arms in the British Armed Forces. At the end of the war, it's just less than five million. And even a year later, it's still about two million. How well handled was the uh, process of demobilization?
1: Well, obviously, demobilization worked in some circumstances better than others. And a lot of people were very uncomfortable about the delay and about a number of the other elements involved, particularly people coming back from the Far East and people coming back um, from other distant stations. On the other hand, um, given the actual constraints of the military situation in 1945, the British military was still called upon to have a large occupation force in Germany, um it needed significant forces in the far east uh, given those obligations the idea that it would all be demobilized that we were going to go back to a military the size of shall we say 1938 i think that that was foolish and some of the expectations that were engendered were foolish i mean 1945 was in some respects a year of triumph but it was also a year of foolish expectations about Britain's role in the world, about what a Labour government could achieve. There was a sense of a failure to get to grips with the real problems and issues confronting both Britain specifically and the world as a whole.
0: I wonder if you could say more about the relationship between this new um, Labour government of Clement Attlee and the uh, military top brass. Um, Were they relatively like-minded in terms of the strategic imperatives, given the acceptance that India and and Burma is going to be, is going to uh, to go towards independence? Um, Or were they very different imperatives? And when was there a real realisation in Whitehall that a Cold War with the Soviet Union our erstwhile allies uh, was inevitable?
1: Well, again, that's a fascinating question. I think I'd start off by saying, as a basic parameter, that the key element was that we didn't have a Popular Front government. So, in other words, we had a Labour government, but not a Labour Communist alignment, as, for example, had existed and been advocated by Popular Front enthusiasts in the 1930s. And, you know, in Britain, that would have been Labour, ILP, the Independent Labour Party, and Communists. Um, Had we had a popular front government, um, the equivalent, if you like, of a Labour Party run by, say, Michael Foote, its leader for part of the 1980s, or Jeremy Corbyn, its leader in the 20-teens, had we had a popular front government, then it's uh, difficult to see anything other than quite serious differences of opinion over the strategic situation, because the British Chiefs of Staff had started to consider the uh, possibility of conflict uh, with the Soviet Union from at least 1944. There's a very good book on this by Julian Lewis, the Member of Parliament. It's gone through two editions, Very, uh, and it reflects the quite justified anxieties about Soviet expansionism. It reflects the awareness of the extent to which during the war the Soviets were continuing to... Um, intrigue and undermine the uh, British position. Um, and I think it's fair to say that from that perspective, a Labour government which was anti-communist, and indeed it's worth bearing in mind that the government deployed troops in the docks in the late 1940s against strikers, um, a government of that type was more likely to see the communists as a threat, as indeed they were. I mean, the first people the communists always shot were the socialists. I mean, uh, so, you know. that. Um, but, um, but so from that perspective, reasonable relations. On the other hand, there were some generals, Orkinleck, for example, and ex-generals, who felt that the, um, the, the government Uh, The Labour government was foolish and feckless in throwing away uh, the empire in South South Asia and were uneasy about it. And in the case of the Admiralty, there was uh, anxiety about Labour's plans to, uh, you know, failure to go on spending money, uh, um, sort of bringing to fruition plans for new big ships. Uh, So there were tensions, there's no doubt about it, just as there were tensions between elements of the intelligence community in the Labour government. But ultimately, Clement Attlee was a patriot. Um, You know, he'd served in World War I, been an officer. Uh, The Labour Party had other people who were clearly patriots in its rank. There had been on the left, particularly national union of miners elements that had been um notably during the nazi soviet pact that had been actually semi-traitorous i think there's no other word to describe their strikes um but these people were not running the labor party
0: Mm -hmm. so um it will come to the creation of nato and and particularly the role of ernest bevan who is the um the labor foreign secretary during this period who is um having been in in the trade union, very aware of the threat of communist infiltration uh, and a vigorous anti-communist. We'll come to that in a moment, but just before we get to that pivot against the Soviet Union, Mm. in the immediate aftermath of war, was there a a sense that the main British commitment would continue to be in uh, a commitment, a continental commitment to Uh, pacifying and occupying Germany. Uh, There was a a civil war in Greece that uh, Britain was involved in. Um, Was it the sense the European theater was really where the predominance of our actions were going to be? Or was there a much more globalist view that that even if India was going to be lost, uh, Singapore for the Navy and and possible insurgencies elsewhere in Southeast Asia were, were going to divert our interest?
1: again, that's very interesting. I would say that, unfortunately, the Labour government of the late 40s, not, not unique among British governments, let me make this clear, um, failed really to make the uh, strategic choices uh, that you, as it were, envisage in a question like that. So Britain was both an occupying power and significantly so with large numbers of troops in Europe. And obviously there were occupation zones in Germany and Austria. But it was also, for example, an occupation power in Libya. Uh, uh, It was an occupation power in Somalia. Um, It was trying to, um, as it were, help dismantle the overseas presence of the Japanese army, particularly in uh, the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia and in French, Indochine, now uh, Vietnam, and as well as that, obviously, there were the specific British possessions. Um, So I would say, and you know, (laughs) as well as you'll be aware, I mean, uh, Attlee was spending money on uh, developing the bomb, the atom bomb. So I would say there was a failure, really, to choose. And this failure to choose... Now, let me make this clear. This was a failure of choice made by the Labour government. It might easily have been made by a Conservative government for the same period. So I'm not saying this has anything to do with Labour. Though, interestingly enough, there was a cognate failure to choose uh, in terms of domestic policy. There There was a failure to understand that the full spectrum of social welfare commitments, nationalisation, plans for national renewal, uh, really uh, were endorsed with an inadequate grasp of fiscal necessities and priorities. And as you may know, we've discussed this on earlier programmes, and listeners can go back on this, I feel that Ackley is one of the most overrated of British prime ministers. I think the biographies of him are very seriously guilty of what's known as the Stockholm syndrome, falling in love with your captive or your subject. And I think that there has been a failure um, to really think through the problems posed by that particular Labour government and in both domestic and foreign military military affairs. So, um, now, you might argue that this legacy continues to be the case um, when the Conservatives come in in, the ni- in 1951, but to a certain extent, the pattern of British commitment has already been established under Labour. The commitment, including, as you've already mentioned, membership of NATO, but also, for example, the decision to build the bomb um, you know, the, um, and the uh, decision to send a significant force to Korea.
0: Well, um, just before we get to Korea, I want to talk uh, with you a little bit about uh, Britain's relations with its major, major wartime ally, um, the United States. Uh, that, that, the period immediately after the war is a time when it looks like America can disengage from Europe again, at least that is the expectation initially of uh, of, of the Truman government. Was there a, um, a fear or an expectation in Whitehall that Britain would be left, as it were, holding the baby for the defence of Europe whilst the Americans went home? Or, or how, how how closely did the Anglo-American alliance endure after, the, after VJ Day, a- and to what extent were they sharing strategic thoughts and objectives?
1: Again, an excellent question. I mean, there was a whole process of geopolitical speculation by a variety of exponents, some official, some non-official. There was, as you correctly say, an anxiety that the United States would disengage from Europe linked to that there was an anxiety that what we what i discussed with you when we were talking about the interwar years that the um that a russo-german pact would as it were re-emerge that the that the soviet union would dominate germany that a revived germany however conceived let's say a germany which wasn't partitioned between a soviet zone and a western zone would look to the soviet union and that this would pose an enormous problem uh, for Britain. And there was also concern about the progress of communism in both France and Italy. So that's, you know, there are a whole host of geopolitical concerns. Now, as far as the United States is, is um, uh, as you will know, there was a lot of hostility towards Britain in the United States. The Americans. Uh, during the war had made it quite clear that they didn't wish to see the furtherance or continuance of the British Empire, and the United States had abysmally failed to come into the war when neutrals were attacked in 3940, early 41. So the United States, um, in many senses, had a very uh, selfish interpretation of its own interests. Um, it um, it uh, therefore was an uneasy partner for Britain, and there were also specific problems in particular areas. Classic one being Palestine, where the uh, the policy of the United States was very different to the policy of Britain, and that wasn't the only uh, area of uh, of difference, incidentally. Um, And I think it's fair to say that the eventual situation in which the United States was anchored in the defense of Western Europe, was one which the British obviously wanted, but it was one that was not inevitable. By the way, I've got a quote here which I wrote down earlier. It's um, it comes from Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, and it's called it's from the present overseas financial position of the United States, which was a Treasury memorandum um, by him that was discussed by the Cabinet on the twenty third of August, nineteen forty five, and he said we have not a hope of escaping what might be described without exaggeration and without implying that we should not eventually recover from it, a financial Dunkirk. Abroad, it would require a sudden and humiliating withdrawal from our onerous responsibilities with great loss of prestige and an acceptance for the time being of the position of a second class power. At home, a greater degree of austerity would be necessary than we have experienced at any time during the war. Now, I mean, I think it's fair to say, you know, there's a lot of literature on this, and readers, listeners can obviously turn to it. But the terms the Americans insisted on from Britain, both financially and commercially, uh, ending imperial preference. Um, the you know, repayment of debt, put Britain in an extraordinarily difficult position. Ironically, that in the end ended up harming not only Britain, but of course the United States as well. Because the, the British, as you will know, in as early as 1947 told the Americans that they could not continue, they could not afford um, to take the leading role in opposing Uh, Soviet expansionism in Greece and and Iran and that if the um, if the Americans wanted anything done about it they would have to act and in a sense America did undermine the British position and um, you know I'm pro-American I find the American policy foolish but then obviously states make foolish policies and one's own states one favors makes foolish policies but ironically the you know, the power that that suffered the most from that was the United States. And you see that again, uh, you saw that again, very clearly after the Cold War, when the the United States transferred, as it were, its most favoured European ally status from Britain to, uh, to Germany, and then discovered in 2003 that the Germans, and indeed the French, weren't at all interested in helping them over Iraq. So the Americans have a track record, unfortunately, of harming Britain and failing to understand that of its allies, it is probably the most reliable.
0: Well, uh, uh, one of the areas where where Britain is involved, and a place of of interest to America, of course, is in Palestine. how would you describe um, Anglo-American uh, diplomacy? Uh, did that have any effect on Britain's decision to uh, withdraw from Palestine? Or was it you know, the, the bombing of the King David Hotel in, in the sense that the position was becoming untenable and we, we simply, we wanted to get out given that we had stretched resources elsewhere and uh, a yeah, terrible winter was coming?
1: I would put my emphasis on the latter, Graham. I would very much put my emphasis on the latter. I think as far as... I mean, obviously, the United States undermined Britain and undermined it at the United Nations and so on and so forth. but ultimately, Britain was the power on the ground there, and there was a limit to uh, what the United States could do about it. It wasn't uh, in a position to to take over or anything like that but the the circumstances, as you say, were ones of growing intractability. Um, rather similar indeed to the situation in South Asia, Uh, sectarian violence, of course, in um, in uh, Palestine was between uh, Jews, and Muslims in uh, in India and Pakistan, it was obviously the Hindu Muslim uh, dichotomy was the key one. And it put the British in a very difficult position. And there were too many commitments, but ultimately as well. There was the question, what on earth were the British doing there? It wasn't a strategic asset, the strategic asset in the region was the Suez Canal, uh, the air bases in Cyprus, um, the air bases and oil reserves in the north of uh, Iraq, You know, Palestine, as I'm using that term because that's what it was then called. I'm not making any comments on what is the correct term today. But Palestine was a waste of space, quite frankly, in strategic terms. And, um, you know, possibly would have been better if people had thought that through earlier, as the French were thinking through earlier in the case of Syria and Lebanon.
0: Well, I I want to to turn back to the uh, background to the creation of, of, of NATO, um, obviously there was a, 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 a the, the development of the Cold War was a process, not an event. But was there a, was there a really moment of clarity in, in Whitehall? And I'm using Whitehall to include the Ministry of Defence uh, as well as more broadly the, 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 um, the, the politicians over the road in, in the Palace of Westminster. Uh, was there a moment of clarity where they thought, ah, if full-on Cold War is now not a possibility, it is inevitability. Was there anything that, that Stalin, you think, did that, that was, was the straw that, that broke the back?
1: Well, I think that's a very good question. I mean, I think that the straw that broke the back was the overthrowing of um, the non-communist government in Czechoslovakia. I think um, there was already been a whole series of rash and aggressive... Uh, measures by the Soviet Union very similar in many respects to the way in the Balkans and Eastern Europe to the policies followed by Nazi Germany in uh, the late 30s beginning of the 40s the Soviet Union was pretty well acting the same way um and I think it was Czechoslovakia that really did it a whole host of reasons not least um putting increased pressure on um the American zone in Germany, um, overthrowing a non-communist government, which appeared to be stable and which wasn't a monarchy. Um, And I think in a way, um, you know, there'd been a reluctance among some members of the Labour government to accept the nature of communism, not least because it often acted behind popular front kind of entryist policies and and platforms Um, but I think that really did do it and of course with Czechoslovakia you also have the significance and symbolism of the Munich agreement of 38 39 that in a way if you are going to be berating Chamberlain for Munich and what the hell are you doing allowing the communists to behave in a similar fashion and I have to say that point is one which left-wing historians in Britain have never adequately answered. Many left-wing historians castigate appeasement, um, but seem to um, have accepted or be prepared to accept or countenance um, Soviet expansion, which was comparable, both in 1939, 1940, and then again in the late forties.
0: Well, I'd like to explore with you Um, what the creation of NATO and the recognition that uh, Britain was involved in the Cold War, what consequence that had for the British Armed Forces themselves. In 1948, there's the National Service Act, which means that there is conscription for 17 and 21-year-olds, initially for uh, 17 to 21-year-old males, um, initially for 18 months, shortly thereafter to two years. This comes in before Korea. The korean war starts so there's already a sense of a build-up of a large boots on the ground large armed forces how, how how did this change the priorities from the sort of armed forces that uh, that the uh, high command had until that moment envisaged would be the future
1: well i mean it was quite clear that even uh, if and when the occupation of a British zone in West Germany ceased, as indeed it was to cease, there would be the military obligation to man a significant chunk of what was known as the um, uh, inter-German frontier. In other words, the frontier between what we would call West Germany and East Germany. And indeed, Britain uh, manned a very strategic part of that, uh, the area, uh, north of the Hearts, uh, it, through which uh, across which Soviet armor would advance towards the Ruhr and towards Hamburg. Um, so there was obviously going to be a need for a large and significant armed forces for that. And there was going to be a need for a large and significant armed forces uh, in what remains of empire without the traditional remedy of turning to um, the British Indian Army. Um, So there was a real um, sense of um, manpower tension. And I think it's fair to say the um, domestic economy needed labor as well. Um, And in order to ensure that the state continued to control uh, um, a significant number of troops, conscription appeared to be the answer.
0: And, and how does it affect the balance between the three the different services? Um, was there a sense that the British Army of the Rhine needed a, a large build-up of, of, of tanks and troops? Or how did both the Navy and the Royal Air Force put their pitch for resources?
1: Oh, everybody put their pitch for resources. Um, and, I mean, the Air Force was helped by, of course, the introduction of the nuclear program because the nuclear program originally were free pool sorry free full bombs being dropped by bomber forces which were going to need to be escorted by fighters and by other bombers designed to overcome anti-aircraft desire uh, you know so in other words you were going to need a very large air force if you were going to make sense of britain having a nuclear deterrent it's only subsequently that you move to submarine launched um uh large-scale um nuclear devices um, the navy also was you know still a large force it's still the second largest navy in the world and you know these ships require manning um, so i think it's fair to say that the army had by far the largest call on manpower uh, but its situation was not eased by the fact that there was also a significant navy as for example there wasn't in the case of say the soviet union
0: and and the the navy's focus is to protect the, the north sea from an emerging um a soviet submarine threat or is it in more distant waters
1: Right. Well, initially, it's not. I mean, you're right that it becomes, you're absolutely right that Soviet submarines become a major threat to the North Atlantic. You're also right that under the NATO charter, Britain takes on uh, commitments to the defence of the North Atlantic. Absolutely right. But initially, the Soviet Navy is not the force it, it is to become. Um, the Navy re- remains um, not just um, concerned with the North Atlantic, but it also remains concerned with areas of imperial activity. Britain is still a major naval power in, in uh, the Mediterranean, with naval bases in Gibraltar, Malta, Alexandria, um, you know, that are significant. It is the leading naval power in the Indian Ocean after we have left um. India um, and uh, the British send uh, I could look it up for you but uh, the it's in one of my books the British send a fleet significant fleet to the Korean War so British aircraft carriers are as well as American and indeed at least one French one are off uh, are off uh, Korea bombing you know communist um, military positions so um there is still a, a, you know, a, a significant naval presence, and there's a strong belief in showing the flag. There are historic stations, um, you know, so you would expect to see British warships in South American waters, Chile, uh, Argentina, you'd expect to see them from Simonstown in South Africa. You know, in other words, the kind of 1930s structure of naval power uh, and deployment continues.
0: And um, for the the role that was uh, that, that was played in Korea, which develops from one thousand, nine hundred and fifty to, to one thousand, nine hundred and fifty-three, uh, it, it was a large drain on um, Ministry of Defence resources. How important was the British contribution to that um, United Nations force, uh, supported force that that was uh, deployed in, in Korea?
1: Well the largest contingent uh, by by far was the obviously the south korean after that was the american the british was far smaller but the british was the third largest and after that was the canadian um the it was difficult really to defend participation in terms of traditional british interests geographical economic cultural in any respect but it was seen as a, as an important role in the new kind of containment, to use a word or a term that came in in the late 40s, of the communist bloc. Um, I think it's worth saying that there was tension between uh, Britain and the United States. Uh, The British proved more willing uh, to recognize communist China, the communist takeover of mainland China, uh, than the Americans did. And the British made very clear to the Americans that they didn't want to see the atom bomb used um, in the Korean War. Um, and the British were quite irritated that the Americans, quite understandably, didn't pay much attention to the to British views on most matters. Um, but uh, although I think it's fair to say that you know, the British disquiet among about General McCarthy um, uh, sorry, General MacArthur um, was, uh, I think it probably was a contributing factor in uh, President Truman's disquiet about, um, about MacArthur. Um, I think it's, um, it was an unnecessary commitment from the British point of view. And what's instructive is that when the similar circumstance emerged um, in Vietnam, um in 1953-54, the Americans chose not to help the French. And when it emerged again in Vietnam um, in 63, 64, 65, the British chose not to help the Americans. And you know, I think alliances have to be mature and accept that their alliance partners don't necessarily see eye to eye with them. And I'm not sure that the British. Uh, commitment wasn't too far too much in that context it was very important to help guarantee the continued uh, maintenance of South Korea what became South Korea outside the communist bloc and there was reasons to be concerned and the kind of domino effect that if South Korea fell that there might be um soviet pressure on on um, japan for example particularly hokkaido the northernmost main island um so there was a british you know argument you could move but compared to the role that the british were playing restraining soviet expansionism in europe um and indeed the significance of trying to keep out pro-Soviet fronts and movements from the British Empire, both formal and informal. I think it's fair to say that the Korean War was a uh, a mistake, an overcommitment.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I remember um, uh, uh, some years ago hearing in a in a documentary uh, um, a veteran of the British veteran of the Korean War who'd uh, served with the glorious Gloucesters at the. The famous Battle of, of um, Imjim River, and yeah, having held back these enormous attacking forces against you know, extraordinary odds, um, he, he eventually got back to Britain. And uh, you know, as far as he was concerned, he'd been in the uh, you know the, the heroic adventure of a lifetime. He he got back to his hometown, and the postman passed him, saw that he was quite well tanned, and said, "Oh, have you been on any holidays?" And uh, yeah, there was this sense that you know, uh, this commitment was taking place in Korea to which uh, many people in Britain that ni- neither knew nor cared about um, Is it your sense that really this was something of, of interest to uh, you know, the, the, our role as a world power, our role in the United Nations, our role in, in holding back uh, um, the the what came described as the domino theory of communism or uh, was it? Did it seem necessary at the time? But then, in hindsight, you, you, you'd argue that, that it was a, a more of a mistake.
1: Well, I think for South Korea, it was absolutely crucial that communism was stopped, and we have to only see what happened to North Korea to see how important it was. I mean, you know, I, I really do think that I, that you know, I don't I know you think I might spend too much time criticizing left wing commentators in Britain or the United States, but I think the way in which They don't see the implications in terms of the enslavement of people, as in North Korea, where the whole society is enslaved by a communist state. And the reason, the way in which they don't sort of see that there is some sort of real oddity about them banging on about things that Britain or America did two or three hundred years ago, and actually not talking about how appalling communism was, and therefore the fellow travellers of the left were in the period since 1945. So keeping South Korea out of the uh, communist bloc was crucial. What I am of the view is that the British participation wasn't necessary. I mean, I think the figures are roughly that the British at any one time had between 14 and 15,000 troops and the Americans had about 315,000 troops. So this is an enormous difference in scale. Now, you could argue that the British presence Um, made it easier in the United States, as in the case of Iraq in 2003, to present it as an international coalition. Um, and that, therefore, that one domestic support for the mission. But I don't actually think that that's a correct reading of the situation in America in 1950. And the alternative, which were view, which is well, the Europeans, including the British, should bloody well, uh, you know, as it were, restrain and deter the Soviets in Europe and um, surrounding areas, so that the Americans can concentrate elsewhere. I think that was equally a coherent narrative, because obviously, uh, British forces in, in the Far East had to be supported with a considerable um, supply chain and support network, which was an added burden on a um, on a state that was in Enormous, as Keynes's comments made, enormous financial difficulties. Mm,
0: well, from 1948 and then all the way through to 1960, uh, British forces are involved in the Malayan Emergency, as the conflict with communist insurgents uh, was was called. I, I'm told it was called the Emergency uh, for insurance reasons. I, I, I don't know if, if that's entirely true, but. Um, I, I, Again, I suppose my question is was, was this a conflict that, that Britain found itself drawn into and it got larger and larger but unlike the uh, American commitment uh, later in Vietnam, it, it had a, a more successful outcome. Or uh, are we involved in the wrong kind of teleology to to say the Malayan emergency brilliantly well handled by the British if only the Americans had had learned from the British experience in Vietnam. Well, actually, the, these two should be seen as very different experiences uh, with a with a disconnect between the two.
1: Well, they were different. Dis, they were different experiences. I mean, all wars you benefit from talking about them side by side, even if only the comparisons throw up contrasts which are illuminating. So, and indeed, again, if I might comment on things, Um, at the present moment there is a general criticism, you see it on a lot of the fashionable work of on empire, there's a general criticism of of contextualization. This is just stupid. Contextualization is crucial because it provides you with, as it were, a a means of intellectual understanding and, indeed, a data set in which you can evaluate developments. So so contextualizing the Malaya Emergency and the Vietnam commitment is useful, even though they were different. They were different in a number of respects. and those differences, in fact, in some cases could be looked back to, to the French commitment to get to the Viet Minh um, in the earlier war. And indeed, um, I would say that that is a more valuable comparison with the Americans. I think it's probably quite offensive for them to be compared to in a, with, with the French, but, you know, that I think is quite illuminating. I mean, there are some serious problems. I mean, for example, uh, for the French, North Vietnam abuts... Uh, China, once the communists have won in China and they occupy southern China in 1949, that means there is a frontier behind which the Viet Minh can supply themselves and over which they can advance. Um, Similarly, of course, with the so-called later Vietnam War involving the Americans in which North Vietnam provides the same role. There is not a comparable base for the communists in, in Malaya you know, that Thailand to the north does not provide them with a comparable base. And they, although they are supplied by the Chinese, um, the supply route is harder. It exists, but it's harder. So that's one very major difference. I mean, if you're looking at a, at a insurgency, you always need to consider this issue of borders. So for example, a very different situation. The insurgency in in southern Rhodesia, what is now Zimbabwe, the situation for the Smith government fighting the insurgents became much harder when the communists took over in Mozambique, because that provided an additional frontier um, uh, against from which they could operate against the um, the Smith regime. So that's an element. Another element, of course, is the very different um, ethnic situation. In Malaya, the communists who were always a minority were largely restricted to the Chinese population who are a distinct minority in our uh, in um, in Malaya, the situation was different in Vietnam. So there are differences to assess. Um, The British also, I think it's fair to say, benefited from a, remember, when this started, Malaya was a colony, Um, you know, there were the local rulers, but it was essentially a colony, Uh, they benefited from a more supportive domestic environment within Malaya. Whereas, although many South Vietnamese soldiers fought bravely against the communists, I think it's fair to say that the South Vietnamese government was dysfunctional. And that was a major problem for the Americans. There was also the the nature of American war making, which um, had its deficiencies. Now we could, I'd be very happy to have a completely separate program after we've finished this series on Britain as a military power in which we discuss the Vietnam War. And I have written about it in my book on insurgencies and counterinsurgencies, which I hope uh, some readers will will read. Um, But I think it's fair to say that, again, there was much professionalism among the American military, but there was much inadequate uh, um, soldiering, particularly command. And I think it's fair to say that in a easiest environment and the British were in an easier environment they also um, operated more professionally
0: and did, did they learn the British armed forces in Malaya did they learn and develop their their tactics um, to deal with the insurgents um, you know as, as, as the conflict unfolded or were they able to draw on um, second world war experiences of Fighting in jungles, you know, protecting towns and villages, uh, which, which were helpful.
1: Well, uh, both, in fact, um, in terms of counterinsurgency, uh, the principal uh, thing that they were looking at was the experience, unsuccessful experience, of course, um, in Palestine in the late forties, um, in Greece in the late forties. Uh, Both of these were relevant, and then the experience was taken on into Malaya. From Malaya was used in order to help uh, in resisting the Mau Mau rebellion in Kenya. And um, I think it's fair to say that Britain became more proficient in counterinsurgency operations, although that didn't mean it was universally successful. Cyprus posed a big problem in the late 50s and Aden in South Yemen, if you like, in the early 60s. Um, But nevertheless, the British had an experience or some experienced officers, both in the Uh, Army and in the police, and the integration of the two was important. There was no comparable integration for the Americans in the Vietnam War. The integration of the two was important, and as you correctly say, the Burma War meant that the British had had a lot of experience in Southeast Asia, and Malaya was an easier country to operate into, not least if you have Uh, absolute superiority at sea and in the air than the interior of Burma had been in 1944-1945. So yes, there is an accumulative pattern that is worth thinking about of transferred experience. Now, as you may know, I don't know how much you know about this, there is controversy as to whether the British arm used subsequently in Northern Ireland in the late 60s, tactics and techniques developed by people like General Kitson, reflecting on the experience of counterinsurgency uh, in the empire. Uh, That's maybe something we can discuss in another context. But certainly, I think that as far as Malaya is concerned, I think we should regard that as a success. And success was not just of Britain, it is key to bear in mind that the British were pledged to take Malaya to independence, they did so, they fulfilled their promise, Um, and that I think was an important political background, helped to keep the domestic situation within Malaya favourable, but it also meant that you end up with a society, a state, uh, an economy, which has had considerably more benign uh, trajectory than if it had been a communist one.
0: Well, uh, we'll talk in a subsequent uh, Black's History Week podcast about uh, the British experience in Northern Ireland, and next week we'll be uh, looking at many of those conflicts um, during the period leading up to the winds of uh, the, the winds of change, the Mau Mau uprising, but but also. Um, in the Mediterranean with Cyprus and and of course the Suez Crisis too but for now Professor Jeremy Black thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you very much and I do think if people are interested I mean I'm not urging them to buy it you can get it from a library but I do think the book on insurgency and counterinsurgency is very interesting because in it I've tried to contextualise you know, what the British had, the American experience, and the experiences of other powers, and it focuses very much on the 20th century. And, you know, Graham and I are discussing this um, in the context of British history, but obviously it's very necessary for listeners who are interested in other countries to, in their own mind, and hopefully if you have questions, send them into Graham and we can integrate them into the next discussion, um, to consider, you know, in that context, their own country's experience.
0: Well, Professor Black, for now, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.